Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I have a friend of the pod, personal friend, comrade, local Austin anarchist, anarcho underscore toast, and who I, whom I will refer to as toast, comrade toast, moving forward. But toast, how's the bread buttered today? Nice and toasty. Very nice. <laughs> king, of, king of breadsticks in the fucking house. <laughs> but today we are going to be talking a little bit about... Uh, Friend of the friend, also friend of the pod, and uh, let's see, uh, Herr Sterner, Max Sterner. So the name of, and we actually are, will be discussing primarily an article by Maddie Thomas called "The Relevance of Max Sterner to Anarcho-Communist," which Toast and I both sort of fall into. And um, actually, that's maybe a good starting point too. Would be because I think that I definitely. I mean, maybe I should back up and say Sterner, I think of, like, I really enjoy his sort of metaphysical critique, um, the spooks and whatnot, and as a sort of curiosity in that a sort of a leftist egoism is not something that you really run across, and it's just such a unorthodox take that I fucking love it, and I don't know, there's just something fun about Sterner, like, there's kind of like, he's, you know what I mean, there's something about him that I just find myself drawn to. It's uh, definitely like a, like Derrida. Derrida is fun as himself as well, just kind of questioning everything and deconstructing. It's um, just a different way to frame it. Um, but always fun to question it all. Yeah, I definitely agree. I've said that many times. That I feel like Cerner's kind of a proto-postmodernist in that he is really going after the fundamental assumptions of sort of the enlightenment and modernism itself. Um, but like maybe Orient is too, cause I feel like I'll go first and say that I'm sort of a weird kind of confluence of ANCOM mixed with maybe some even post left anarchism and sort of this, a little bit of this egoist uh, anarchism kind of some like taking little bits and pieces from all of those. But I think primarily like the, the ANCOM flag is probably what I would most identify with. And I think it's totally flexible. It's not a, you know, if, yeah, you, right. look it's at, not orthodoxy, if right. you look at the history of um, like the anarchist movements at the turn of the 20th century and 20th century, you'll see kind of a, a vacillation between the currents of like anarcho-syndicalism, individualist anarchism, and anarcho-communism, but they all kind of complement each other, right? They're just yeah. different takes on different um, sections of the struggle. Um, so yeah, um, there's, um, and even, even with organizations, like there's historically been platforms or organizations that'll have individualists that'll, that go in there for the sake of acting in a certain cause, right? Even though some are anti-organizationalists, but yeah, um, definitely it's very open. Anarchy is a method. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you agree? Uh, cause I think I've made this argument too, and maybe even to, or said this as part of like our discord or whatever, is that like Anarchism is the method to prevent, in a the me- method to combat oppression, in a sense, like as a strategy. Exactly that, and that is the end goal, right? To to fight it um, as far as it can take, right? Um, as far as we don't know what the horizon is, but you keep pushing towards it. Yeah, and it's sort of like defang the capitalist hierarchy, defang the state, and then there's less opportunity. There's less of a mechanism for the individual or even whatever the community to be crushed by 
you know, some outside force, a, a state that's thousands of miles away making decisions or a corporation, whatever the case may be. Yeah, both within and without, right? Um, so from threats from within, if any um, hierarchical or authoritarian tendencies that can crop up in society, right? It, it would not be, it's a struggle that would not end. It's not utopian in any sense, right? We have to always contest where hierarchy and oppression appear. Before we jump right into the article, I did want to read, and something you have shared with me, I want to read Engel's description <laughs> of, our, of our good friend Max Stirner. Look at Stirner. Look at him, the peaceful enemy of all constraint. For the moment he is drinking beer, soon he will be drinking blood as though it were water. When others cry savagely, down with kings, Stirner immediately supplements, down with the laws also. Stirner, full of dignity, proclaims, you bend your willpower and you dare not call and you dare to call yourselves free you become accustomed to slavery down with dogma ah, down with dogmatism down with the law right on and that fucking slaps pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> like uh that's such a great description i uh, i hope people talk about me in that in that light when they're making fun of me you know <laughs> but uh let's see the article kind of, uh and i already introduced maddie thomas wrote this article and the starting point here is sort of how different groups have used Stirner's ideas through, throughout the years, and many of them not being exactly uh, of the ANCOM variety. Um, and I'll quote from the text here. Um, he's been an influence on the devotees of extreme laissez-faire capitalism, erroneously known in the United States as libertarianism. However, there are those who have made Stirner's ideas the very basis of their anarcho-syndicalist organizing. Perhaps such varied interpretations are inevitable when faced with a book that at times seems almost deliberately intended to disturb and discontent or disconcert. And I'm assuming the author is probably referring to the unique in its property, or the um, what the, what's the other one? What's the shitty translation? The, the ego in its, its own. own. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty in, interesting that some syndicalist groups had actually used some of Stirner's ideas, even if it's very broadly. I thought that was a pretty cool. I didn't know there was much integration with, you know what I mean? I don't know if Stirner seems like a pretty obscure figure other than like the extremely online left and like the memes and everything. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely obscure. And I think I mentioned it before on the previous episode where like he, he his stuff wasn't widely known until the 1890s when it was resurfaced, influenced the legalists, influenced uh, Americans, uh, anarchists like uh, Boleyn Declare. Um, so yeah, and even even the only part of Marx that actually tackles um, Marx uh, Stirner is in the German ideology, which was not published until posthumously, right? So way after the 1880s. So definitely um, much more obscure article moves on to discuss a little bit of how Stirner was fairly critical of authoritarian communism. Um, and it, the article says here that the sort of ANCOM as a developed idea didn't really quite exist during Stirner's era. Is that something that you would, do you feel like that's accurate at all? It is absolutely because, uh, so he would be a young Hegelian, what, in the 1840s, right? Uh, hanging out with young Engels, drinking beer, <laughs> <laughs> drinking blood. Um, so that would be right. I think the, as far as literature, the first known ANCOM would have been um, Je 
the Jacques, right? And he did not elaborate his ideas until after the 1848 revolution in France, right? And kind of his time in America. So he was kind of the first ANCOM because Bakunin was a collectivist. He didn't live long enough to to, to arrive at full communism as a, as a distinction. Um, so that is, I would say that's pretty accurate. Um, and I'll get you, I want to get your opinion here too, because uh, it, the article goes on to say that what Sterner critiqued was this author, authoritarian communism, but it was the monastery or the communism of the monastery or the barracks, a communism of self-sacrifice and general leveling. Those who would prefer a communism that guarantees the freedom of each individual to develop themselves as unique can find much that is value in, uh, value in Sterner. So I've seen this commentary about barracks communism. What, what is that? Is it, is it as clear? Is, it, is there any depth to that? Or is that just pretty, pretty on the surface? It's, it's on the surface, but there's some history, right? Even Marx himself was against barracks communism. Um, so it kind of, I mean, right, Marx chose communism as communist manifesto in the title to kind of separate himself from the socialists that came before. But the kind of socialists that came before were kind of people with some kind of proto, you know, liberation theology going on. There was some, you know, religious ethic and kind of this culty humanism to it. So there was definitely like, oh, you have to give up, you know, X thing. So that's the barracks, the regimented communism of sacrifice for the whole, right? Which these people were totally against. Um, article goes on and there's sort of, um, I think, an interesting kind of parallel to sort of the Nietzschean critique of slave morality. And I'll just read straight from the text. What is not supposed to be my concern? He answers that an, that an individual is supposed to be concerned first with God's cause then humanity's cause, the cause of the country, truth, of justice, and a thousand other causes. The only cause that is not support, supposed to concern the individual is her own cause, the cause of self. My cause is not supposed to be my concern. The person who makes their own cause their concern is a selfish person. Instead, the individual is told to put another cause before their own, where to work tirelessly in the service of an, of an other or others, never for ourselves. To think of doing otherwise would make one an immoral egoist. We are moral only when we are unselfish, when we take up a cause alien to us and serve it. It's a good quote. And I think he really tackles, without describing exactly capitalism and societal like oppression and hierarchy, but tackles the fact that there's, in social relations, right, we have this tools of domination we're told that we have to serve a greater good that greater good is not necessarily moral either right but it's kind of pressed on with some kind of social moralisms to it and um you know the selfishness right what is selfishness if, if it's only based on the scarcity of items right the scarcity of goods and services that capitalism creates to create exchange value etc so definitely attacking all these assumptions of society stands on uh, I think next there's a really interesting critique here of everyone serving in their self-interest, but not sort of being honest with themselves about it and, and, and living in a kind of bad faith. But although I have heard this argumentation used by sort of right libertarians, so I don't know, like, I, I kind of am attracted to it, but I'm not sure, you know what I mean? It's a little bit uncomfortable, I think. 
And yeah, there's, there's totally accusations. And even in the, you know, non egoist anarchism, there's these tendencies as well to question these relationships of, you know, domination of the individual from external forces. But libertarians are not conscientious uh, egoists, right? They're definitely in, in bad faith and also in a false consciousness, right? Because they still relegate this idea of property and exchange that is total spook, right? And they put that above themselves and their own self-interest, which is to eliminate that structure. I'll uh, read from the text again, uh, just to outline exactly a little bit more thoroughly this argument. The causes of God and humanity both turn out in the end to be purely egoistic. God concerns himself only with himself, man likewise. So Sterner encourages his readers to follow the example of, of the, these great egoists and make themselves the main thing altogether. In other words, to become conscious egoists. For Sterner, all individuals are absolutely unique, and once the individual has become conscious of her egoism, she will reject any attempt to fetter her personal uniqueness or to restrict her individual autonomy. This, of course, includes the cause to act only in the service of something higher than oneself. Those who sacrifice themselves to serve some higher being or cause are duped or unconscious egoists seeking their own pleasure and satisfaction of the name of whatever cause they're subordinated themselves to, but refusing to admit it. They are egoists who would not like to be egoists, which I thought was a really good point there. <laughs> All your doings are unconfessed, secret, covert, and concealed egoism, but because they are egoism that you are unwilling to confess to yourselves that you keep from yourselves, hence not manifest and public egoism, consequently unconscious egoism, therefore they are not egoism but thraldom, service, self-renunciation. You are egoists and you are not since you renounce egoism. A lot of parallels there with Nietzsche, right? God is dead. Um, the existentialist, um, you know, conciliation of like the self, right, and desire as opposed to the structures placed upon them. Yeah, pretty fucking good stuff. Yeah, I do. I do think it's. I mean, he really nailed it with that idea of like, yeah, you're you are self interested, but you're in bad faith about it, which is pretty like if you really look at yourself and your behavior, you're like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that kind of. I wonder how much of an influence that was into early Marx's like false consciousness, right? Because no matter what anyone says, um, even if Marx did not agree with Hersterner, <laughs> um, definitely made an impression, right? Um, as far as as far as dialectics of, of thought and self and society, because as much as Engels would hate to admit it, Marx was a di dialectician to to the grave, right? Where Engels was more like a positivist. Um, so definitely, definitely an influence. And then uh, the author discusses here, which I think is a really cool idea that Sterner has of what the self is, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, he calls it a creative nothing. Um, and sort of, it straddles that sort of existentialist line, but also kind of almost maybe even a solipsistic viewpoint to a degree. Maybe that's not fair, but... Um, the, f the fact that he kind of describes the self as this process I thought was pretty fascinating. And then how the self is sort of unknowable and um, incomprehensible. And when I look at my own actions sometimes, I just wonder, you know, when I kind of think, you know, I'm this sort of rational person, but a lot of times I'm like, wow, what the fuck am I doing? Wow, why did I do that? Why did I say that? You know what I mean? So 
I think it's interesting that we remain sort of even mysterious to our own selves, in a sense. And I'll read um, the actual quote from the text here. The self for Sterner is something impossible to comprehend because each one of us is constantly consuming and recreating his or herself. Sterner refers to this process of self-consumption and self-creation as the creative nothing. Not nothing in the sense of emptiness, but nothing in the sense that I as creator create everything. And I think that applies, and I think that's that's a beautiful description, right, of, of existentialism before we had these existentialist currents, right, before even Kierkegaard. And I think it also applies... And this goes down later as, an, as a point of topic later in the article, right, about the union of egoists, right? Where, like, this this creative nothing, this creative process of the synthesis of self, or done collectively creates a so- social whole, right? He kind of hints at that possibility through this dialectical method. I think it's really interesting, too, that, again, he is, like, really exposing himself as sort of, like, again, this sort of pro- proto-postmodernist or structuralist, what have you, in the sense that, like, we have this conception of the self as a static entity, right? Whereas he's saying, no, this, the self is always changing. It's always, you're always recreating and growing and changing, which I think is a, you know, a much more dynamic picture of what a self is rather than kind of what, what people assume or what lay people would kind of assume, you know, that there's a static self that is always remains the same, whether you're from the time you're five to the time you're dead, that there's some sort of consistency in, in that self, but that's sort of a fiction. That's sort of that spook, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I think even kind of plays a little bit into sort of Lacanian thought as well. There's definitely a segue there, right? As you begin to question kind of the, the semiotics of things. And, and definitely his conception of human development as well falls into a sort of Lacanian uh, discourse. Um, he, in the article, brings out this, this idea of the realistic child phase, um, really reminded me of kind of what Lacan describes the, the subject being prior to being ingratiated into the symbolic order. So whenever the infant or you know, toddler or whatever starts to learn language and then recognize themselves and become part of the symbolic order through learning language and be able to express themselves symbolically. And then Sterner goes on and he has a very, what I would consider a very Derridian critique of modernism in the idea that modernity made humanity even more enslaved to a sort of religious idealism because it started to it started to pervade into more intimate uh, aspects of our human experience from an individual perspective. And he specifically calls out the Reformation for causing this in its in that individualistic communication with God, <clears throat> making the point even that I thought that this was sort of neither here nor there, but he talked about how uh, marriage became religious under Protestantism, which is kind of a funny, like, you don't, it's kind of a counterintuitive take. Yeah. Interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Sterner considered this the domination of the individual to essences or idealism. Um, and I'm going to read it from the text so that we can kind of get this straight from the horse's mouth feel for the process of human development and how that applies here. 
Sterner begins by giving us the example of a human life that compares the three stages of human development to the three stages of historical development. We begin life as realist children. During this phase, the child is subject to physical external forces such as their parents. However, the child begins to break free of these constraints through what Sterner calls the discovery of mind, which I would say that's more so, that's kind of like being becoming part of the symbolic order that Lacan would mention. The child, by using its own wits and determination, begins to evade the purely physical forces which previously kept him in check. In this way, we move from realistic childhood to ide- idealistic youth and are sort of ingratiated into that symbolic order. Uh, let's see, and then I'll kind of flip through and go to a little bit further um, in the text. He's going to talk about with the rise of secularism, modern society claims to have escaped the domination of religious modes of thought over life. Not so, says Sterner. Modernity has only served to increase the domination of religion, the domination of higher essences set over the individual, one example being the Protestant Reformation. While the Reformation is and was widely regarded as a liberatory event which opened the door for the, religious, the religion of freedom of conscience and freed life from the authority of the church, Sterner viewed it as an expansion and strengthening of religious domination. Religion was, though the Refor- through the Reformation, able to intrude into areas of life where it had previously been unknown. Things like marriage and, I guess, the individual relationship with God. Yeah, commu- like definitely you see like communal living, you could have a, instead of just the, the theocratic nature of the, of the church as a state institution, now you have kind of these new, more... I want to say, I want to say, decentralized, right? Essences of the church seeping into life, right? Um, coming more into the home, etc. As everyone can be their own pastor, kind of thing. I thought this was interesting too, because um, I immediately, maybe because I've been reading so much postmodern stuff lately, and uh, it really reminded me of kind of Foucault's idea of how sort of this coercive power structures throughout, you know, the modernity kind of evolved right um and sort of became a lot things became a lot more subtle and that sort of self-policing aspect of the individual relationship with god now that that responsibility is on the individual and you sort of own that moral that morality and begin to police yourself and control yourself and you become your own cop right it's it's the panopticon where you're both the prisoner and you're the person in the tower. Yeah. And I think there's some parallels there with like neoliberal deregulation, right? You remove the state from an industry and now the industry is like this bunch of small little tyrants, right? Organizing themselves and you create more power than there was before, right? Kind of at a macro level. I'll read from the text again, just to further drill in on, on this idea. Protestantism, however, abolished the institutional clergy in favor of priesthood of all believers and so placed religious authority within the believer, an authority that she could never escape. The result left individuals at war with themselves, torn between fulfilling their desires and being tormented by the fixed idea of internalized religious authority. Sterner compares it to the struggle between citizens and the state's secret police which I, I really identified with this too in the sense of when I was being, you know, I was raised 
in an evangelical home and, you know, sort of coming of age and puberty and kind of whatnot. It's like, you know, I've got all these desires. I've got these urges that are sort of set in conflict with this religious belief, right? And there was the, always that tension, that dialectical struggle between, okay, well, how can this, how can this be? Like, there's the contradictions just couldn't stand, right? And eventually I just kind of discarded the religious element because it just didn't make sense. And I, I can say that I experienced something like that, even though it was raised Catholic, right? Coming, trying to separately from the Catholicism, trying to, you know, negotiate the belief and kind of interpret scripture, right? You kind of deal with the same thing, right? You have this kind of idea what you're told, what you're reading, right? And the mixture of the guilt of trying to reconcile you know, I guess your egoistic tendencies, right? The the thing you want to do, consciously being told by the church and told differently from scripture. So kind of. This next line I thought really fit into Derrida's critique, or was a kind of a parallel with the critique of phlogocentrism, God, play, God re- being replaced with science and rationalism, but all they did was sort of just replace that universal signifier of a god with the god of reason or rationality. Modernity only transforms authority, enlarging and strengthening it by virtue of making it more invisible. Again, and that's even tying to, to that more diffuse notion of power that Foucault sort of talked about as well, in that it's not really emanating from top down but we're sort of all complicit in the systems of control yeah and recreating it like uh it's some said some self-policing like exactly said, self-policing yeah. the state is inside of us all as well the rise of humanism for example dethroned the crucified god and in his place exalted humanity but since humanity is also an ideal placed above the individual for her to subordinate herself to sterner considers humanism just as much a religion as christianity it claims to have outgrown our, this is a really great quote from Sterner. Our atheists are pious people. Humanism says Sterner is actually more tyrannical than theism because the phantom humanity is able to terrify non-believers along with the faithful. For Sterner, modernity has only increased the number of abstractions, which he called spooks, to which people subordinate themselves. Sterner accuses those who fancy themselves the free, we might call them progressives in today's jargon, of posturing as a kind of class when in reality they're only the most modern of the moderns. And then um, moving on, I really enjoy Stirner's conception or how he sort of views the individual, um, calling us more than citizens, workers, or even human beings. Human nature or the human essence can't be separated from the individual and set above them because then it becomes a spook, right? And uh, again, from the text, all varieties of liberalism essentialize some aspect of the individual and set it above her as something that they should subordinate themselves to. For Sterner, all individuals are more than citizens, workers, or even human beings. Human nature or the human essence cannot be separated from the individual or set above her because then it becomes nothing but another spook. For Sterner, there is no universal human essence to set above people, only individuals as they exist in the here and now as flesh and blood. Definitely totally jibes with, uh, you know, existence 
I'm blanking out right now. So existing <laughs> preceding existing, essence, yes, the exactly. sort of Sartrean. Sartrean, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, yeah, I mean, his, going back to the earlier stuff about him, you know, the, the self being a process, right? And a, a recreating process goes really good with Sartrean phenomenology, right? And synthesis of the self. So. I think, too, there's a little bit of, like, um, I mean, I obviously, with he's talking about human essence, right? So he's going after the idealists and talking about how individuals as they exist in the here and now in flesh and blood is sort of a kind of a leaning towards a materialist view. I think he was a materialist, just not in the same vein. Right. As, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, there's materialism in the larger philosophical perspective, and then there's dialectical materialism, which is a more spe- like it's specific, right? It's a subcategory. Yeah, it's a subcategory of materialism. That, yeah, and it's really hard to capture diamat, right? Because there, no one actually saw that and explained it. It's like, okay, on this body of work, here it is. So, um, but um, it, I think he's kind of hinting at it, but not using it in the way that Marx would right. have, right? Yeah. yeah. I was glad to see the author explain how Sterner sort of breaks from our lay interpretation of what egoism is. He, he goes against uh, sort of a Kantian notion of another person being a means to an end, um, which I which I will definitely kind of break from because I don't know. I, I didn't kind of like that approach to treating other people as an end, and it felt a little bit like sort of market logic almost. I, I can see that. And even, even the Kant can come across that way, right? But the idea there is that if it's a you know, voluntary on both sides that you're both being used, right? Then it's conscientious and, um, and cool. And it's not so much an exchange as that is kind of a bit of a metaphysical critique on his part, right? But um, ultimately, I guess recognizing the self, the, 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 the unique and the property of the other in kind of a synthesis definitely is a transaction, but I mean, also a social relation, right? Um, because capitalism has r- racked their brain with a transactional thought but this could be something that's you know a priori to that he does there's sort of a food metaphor and I'll, I'll read the actual text here just to um so we can kind of elucidate this a little bit and dig into it a bit further um it should be pointed out that sterner's idea of egoism differs significantly from other philosophies sometimes called egoism Sterner was an advocate of self-interest, even selfishness, but he did not use those terms in the typical narrow way. Sterner was not an apostle of the never-ending pursuit of profit, nor did he preach isolation or use selfishness as an excuse to never give a damn about anyone else. For Sterner's self-interest consisted of the individual egoist actively seizing the world around her as her property. Sterner's use of the word property has caused many readers to misinterpret him, but he was not referring to property in a limited economic sense. Rather, he used the word to refer to anything that was not alienated from the egoist. Thus, when I take a personal interest in an idea, I will reach out and make the idea my own, my property. To the conscious egoist, the only determining factor toward gaining something as one's property is the willingness to reach out and take it. The aim of this active seizure of egoist property is self-enjoyment. Even other people are, for Sterner, a means for mutual self-enjoyment. Okay, I think that's what you were getting at there. For me, you are nothing but my food, even as I am fed upon and turned to use by you. 
we have only one relation to each other, that of usableness or utility of use. But yeah, I think that that kind of made me cringe a little bit, that kind of like we are nothing but utility or of use to one another, but I guess it's a more nuanced, like there's a little bit more nuanced than if you, yeah, if sort you of the market logic. If you, yeah, if you remove the spook of sentimentality, right, ultimately, like if you look at, if you want to get really abstract and look at like animals, right, ultimately, or like really base animals like insects or reptiles, so it's just like a bit of a use, right? Um, we have the mammalian sentimentality of emotions and caring, but ultimately there is a use, but it's also involved in the, in, in the recreation of the self of the ego, right? So there's a layers of abstraction between what's happening at the material level. It is a utility, right? But there is, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess what you're saying. Yeah, because yeah, okay, so yeah, maybe that's I was okay. So like mutual aid. I mean, that's basically what mutual aid, right? It's a like we're banding together because we both benefit from helping one another, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. It just sounded. I just was reading. I was like, eh, I don't know. This kind of sounds like market logic a little bit. And yeah, it's. I can see hints of that, right? And I think it's, it's more like the Rothbardians kind of just co-opting that analogy into their own. Um, you mentioned the union of egoists, which I felt kind of uh, was a little bit sort of abstract, and I wish the author would have delved into it a little bit more. But I'll read from the text again, a little bit about this to clarify. The union of egoists is a relationship in which all who participate in it do so freely and voluntarily out of egoism. The egoist uses the union. The union does not use her. All participants in the union constantly renew the relationship through an act of will. If any participant is coming up short or losing out, then the union has degenerated into something else. The union was Sterner's proposed alternative method of organizing society as a means by which egoists could scuttle the ship of the state and give rise to a state of affairs in which the individual autonomy would flourish. I think that's a it's a tough um, kind of metaphor to like grapple with, right? Because it, it kind of has its limits, but I think it, it does apply to a communistic society, right? Um, and so much is that everyone is, is using the union, right? The, the commune, etc. And is not specifically being used because it's voluntary. That that relationship can can deteriorate at any moment by will, right? Okay. So you're not subjugated to be used by it. You always have a say in yeah. the arrangement. So like under a state or authcom sort of model, it's like you're part of society, but it's being it's almost being forced on you more so. Like you're forced to cooperate versus this is a more completely voluntarily voluntary system. Yeah. By, by the very nature of having the state, you're already coerced into it, right? Within the boundaries, the definition of citizen, within the national boundaries of, of that particular nation state. So you definitely give up all voluntary, even if you think you're agreeing to it. If you want to go back to Rousseau, right? And social contract nonsense. And I think, too, that even goes a little bit towards that sort of bad faith idea, too, in the sense of, like, just even in, like, a modern labor union, right? Like we're all here for, or you're in a part of a union for, for your own self-interest in a sense, right? The banding together in a union is you acting in your self-interest. Everyone is acting in their self-interest. So I don't know, maybe that's a more better way to sort of 
picture exactly what he's getting at. But I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a 100% perfect metaphor, but I think it kind of, it kind of helps me think about it and to kind of understand it a little bit better. Yeah. And to kind of throw in the syndicalist like jargon, right. That's kind of like creating, you know, the new in the shell, the old, right. Kind of creating that union of linguists within this constraint full of spooks that stop us from being who we really are. So it definitely applies, especially if it's rank and file unionism, right. Or it's just, Common voluntary, hate your boss. <laughs> um, and now the text is going to go into a little bit about the actual one of the actual movements that utilized Stirner. It is a fact until re- relatively recently, most of the anarchists inspired by Stirner were not communists. In the U.S., the most well-known exponents of egoism were Benjamin Tucker and his comrades centered around the individualist anarchist journal Liberty. Indeed, Tucker was the driving force behind the publication of the first English edition of Stirner's book. However, he has also been a significant influence on thinkers more in the mainstream anarchist tradition. In the 1940s, the anarcho-syndicalists of the Glasgow Anarchist Group made Stirner's idea a part of their ah, organizational strategy. Had you were you familiar with with Tucker at all? Yeah, um, I'm not super all right on Tucker because um, he was kind of pacifist individualist, right? Um, and so his stuff is worth reading from what I've you know from what I've glanced, but I'm not totally deep into it. And um, I mean, those currents definitely popular currents, right? But they just they weren't tied to any militant struggles. What about the Glasgow Group? Is that anything you've ever heard of before? No, I can't say I have. Um. Supposedly, they used Stirner's ideas uh, to organize as an applied form of egoism. Um, even Emma Goldman was sort of inspired by Nietzsche and Stirner. Um, definitely, Stir- uh, Nietzsche is also extremely influential on the post-structuralist, post-modernist. Um, Goldman actually defended Stirner a little bit, and then we even have a, a little bit of Bookchin talking about Stirner, even though uh, he eventually sort of soured on his opinion of Stirner, but I, we're getting in all the hits with Goldman. Yeah. We got, we got Stirner, we got Nietzsche and I'll read again from the text. They took Stirner's idea of the union of egoists literally as a way of freely organizing, organizing within industry and thus explained syndicalism as applied egoism. The anarcho communist activist and cartoonist Donald room was introduced by Stirner Uh, introduced to Sterner by members of this group and has adhered to a conscious egoism ever since. Emma Goldman's anarchism was profoundly influenced by thinkers like Sterner and Nietzsche. In the introduction to her book, Anarchism and Other Essays, Goldman defends Sterner against shallow and erroneous interpretations, commenting that his philosophy contains the greatest social possibilities. Even the younger Murray Bookchin, whose attitude towards the German egoist later soured considerably, wrote... Stirner created a utop- utopistic vision of individuality that marked a new point of departure for the affirmation of personality in an increasingly impersonal world. And I think, yeah, all valid points, and I think there's merit there to see that the kind of the egoism, Max Stirner's egoism, has the communistic spirit that even showed up in some of Marx's work, right? The idea that we can unbound ourselves from, from limitations, right? That the human humanity of the self and the context that we know humanity limits us, right? Uh, we kind of frame our limitations based on these 
one the moral limitations that we assume with humanism, right, as well as the present state of society around us. But if we unfetter ourselves from that and we take everything around us in our possession, not so much as prop like you know material property, but like property is in something that can come into us as a synthesis of self, we can produce unbound potential. And as a union of egoists, we can create even more productive, creative potential out of the creative nothing, right? Exactly. By kind of, yeah, exactly. Unshackling ourselves from that humanism. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I wish I knew the context of this Kropotkin quote that I'm going to read. I'm a, hopefully, maybe you'll have some insight here. So many communists, while rejecting God, the Father, God, the state, and God, the corporation, set up instead God, the community a fearsome deity that Kropotkin called more terrible than any of the preceding. For Stirner, as for the egoistic communists, these are all spooks. The communist egoist does not serve the people, the masses, or any other spook. She serves herself because she is a part of, because she is part of the people, part of the masses. The Kropotkin quote is from an essay he wrote in, in his Radarbolt magazine. And it's to defend, and it, you know, it's thrown at anarcho-communism by post-left anarchists and other anarchists that, you know, like, oh, you want communes, and the commune's going to be the new dictator of the community. Well, like, that's not necessarily true. Kropotkin always said that we have to have community, but we can't have community that's imposed itself on the individual, right? That's the limit. And a thing about utopian socialists and some of the barracks communists is that they kind of wanted communal living arrangements, right? They wanted, like, shared kitchens, like, you know, that kind of home structure, Kropotkin actually advocated for individual home spaces because the, the individual has to have the, the freedom to join society, participate, and uh, also okay. go and be themselves in private space. Nice. Okay. I'm pretty impressed that you could fucking, <laughs> that you picked up on that Kropotkin. Oh, that's from uh, so-and-so. Yeah, I was reading his anthology recently, working my way oh, through nice. it. <laughs> nice. Um, definitely agree with this next bit of text. Um, Sterner sort of, dip, again going back to that kind of proto-postmodern streak and attacking uh, meta-narratives. Any revolutionary who is to be counted on can only be in it for himself. Unselfish people can always switch loyalty from one projection to another. Furthermore, only the most greedy people can be relied on to follow through on the revolutionary project. Damn, such an iconoclast. <laughs> Anarchists who wish to demolish the authority of the state and of capital, but want to leave the authority of fixed ideas like morality, humanity, rights, or altruism intact only go halfway. It's absolutely correct. It's a very correct take because, I mean, all our perceptions of value and self and stuff, right, are limited to our current contexts, and we would have to destroy that to come up with what value is in a new context, right, unfettered from the constraints of old. So even if we have to create a, a new replacements for these, they're, they're, we will do so voluntarily through our own agency as a union of egoists. So I think it totally applies. Yeah, definitely, I think, is kind of displaying that difference between ANCOMs and the more state-oriented communist trains, right? Definitely, especially because... And especially the historical examples, like, you know, the Soviets and... That's my critique of the like sort of the Soviets is they yeah they try they broke from they didn't break from these ideas of more ever morality humanity rights altruism like those aspects like it was just a more primitive um, dismantling well not even I mean they didn't really dismantle the mode of production so much as 
transform it into, you know, not fully into a different mode, but they sort of like slapped on uh, a socialist coat of paint, but really didn't ever get around to changing the mode in the way that we would like to, right? And yeah, you're right. Um, that's, I don't want to say anything too inflammatory because <laughs> yeah, I know you have, we have other types of comrades that listen. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was um, I, some some naivete and some metaphysics that they applied to their reasoning that didn't follow through with social transformation of the relationships, right? Um, a lot of those were held because strong convictions. There was historical forces that forced their hand. But um, there kind of was a, a resistance to kind of autonomy of the worker, right? That, that that's There's facts around how they resisted that for various reasons. Um, here's a, another passage from the text that I really love because he sort of goes in on that John Galtian, Randian view of, uh, of who the parasites are in society. Even the patriarchy is a target here. Altruism living to serve others is one of the most pernicious superstitions extant in our civilization today. Workers engage in terrible altruistic action every day when they labor to enrich the capitalist who receives much simply by virtue of the fact that he has so much already. Women are victims of altruism when they waste away living to serve a man who is nothing but a tiny tyrant over the home. Egoism encourages individuals to no longer die slowly giving presents to those who give nothing in return. And from this idea flows the egoist communist desire for insurrection and expropriation. And quite fitting that I do think that altruism breeds the martyr, right? And it's kind of ingrained in all the people that are oppressed, right? Like you're giving yourself to the greater cause. And I guess that's kind of a great a kind of description of our postmodern condition, right? Where we kind of move past modernity and we have to create all this meaning to subjugate ourselves to the status quo, right? Whether it be um, in the year 2019, still dealing with patriarchal relations, right? With um, the trad lifestyle, <laughs> if you will. And, um, and also the bootlickers that love going to work and work extra hours, I, you know? Yeah. I just love this, that quote here we was talking about. Um, let's see, I'll read it. The capitalist who receives much simply by virtue of the fact that he has so much already. Like, yes, that really gets to the heart of it right there. Like, that's the critique. Like, if put that on a fucking bulletin board. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally saw that on the timeline recently. It was like, well, you're not taking the risks, right? You know, they're putting it on the line because they have it already. Yeah, that's exactly. A terrible way of reasoning. Right. Um. Then the text moves into a critique of private property, which I think Sterner's critique is is pretty good um, in that he's pointing out that might or, you know, really coercion is at the heart of property. Uh, I think a really good concept, the entire world, <laughs> the entire world is the egoist property waiting to be taken. The communist egoist has for the object of her appropriation the totality of life. That's what I call an abundance of fecundity, to borrow from, <laughs> from Bookchin. Uh, but I'll go on and read the actual quotes here. When one applies Sterner's notion of the spook to one of society's most sacred idols, private property, the implications are almost necessarily communist. Sterner ridiculed the right, the idea of any right to property, as he ridiculed rights generally, pointing out that property is based on might or one's power to get it and keep it. Private property 
alien property is just another spook because the entire world is the egoist property waiting to be seized. In other words, the communist egoist has for the object of her appropriation the totality of life. I do not step back shyly from your property, but look at it always as my property, in which I respect nothing. Pray, pray do the like with what you call my property. And I think that that totally goes with like, you know, a Marxist, even Marxist or any, any type of communism, because like if we, if we see capitalism as the totality of social relationships, right, which is a Marxist description. And if we crush that and we have to create a new totality of social relationships, right? If this is a, a network of, of union of egoists, then by joining voluntarily and, and using the utility of this entire network, we have now can, can consume and use the property of the totality of life, right? Of, of the social product, of social, the social organization. So I think it, it totally works. It's very communistic. And yeah, um, <laughs> it, it holds. Um, then the text sort of goes into Stirner's critique of, um, of capitalist labor, labor and what that looks like as opposed to egoist labor. Um, I really like that he points out in the capitalist division of labor that that the laborer's labor is is nothing outside of the context of the the rest of the units right within within production. Stir, Sterner interestingly argues here too that cooperation is more than satisfying than competition. I wish they would have elaborated a little bit further on that idea, but I thought it was really cool and and uh, even I think the production of this podcast would sort of be a great example of an egoist labor, right? Absolutely. When everyone is to cultivate himself into man, condemning a man to machine-like labor amounts to the same thing as slavery. Every labor is to have the intent that the man be satisfied. Therefore, he must become a master in it too, be able to perform it as a totality. He who in a pin factory only puts on heads, only draws the wire, works as it were mechanically like a machine. He remains half-trained, does not become a master. His labor cannot satisfy him. It can only fatigue him. His labor is nothing by itself, has no object in itself, is nothing complete in itself. He labors only into another's hands and is used, exploited by this other. In contrast to the enforced, degrading, regimented capitalist work, Stirner juxtaposed egoistic labor, which people would take part in purely from egoism and would provide opportunities for self-realization and self-enjoyment. Indeed, Stirner recognized that cooperation was more often was often more satisfying than competition. Which again, I think the podcast is a perfect example of that, right? Like it's doing all of those things. It's helping it's um, increasing my my self-realization and self-enjoyment but it's also like we are both here like and it kind of goes back to that idea too that we're talking about earlier is like we're both there's sort of a it's not a transactional relationship but we are both giving each other in a sense like our own property our own ideas our own knowledge and we're freely doing that and enriching each other's individuality yeah. In a communal in a communal way, right? Exactly. Which is communal, voluntary, and uh, we are free association creating something together, right? Well, yeah. Well, in the process of becoming new people, right? Like if you want to look at the, the creative nothing, right? Yeah. Like recreation of self. That's a really good fit. I never, 
I mean, it kind of dawned on me when I was kind of prepping for the podcast that, oh, like, like literally before you got here, I was like, oh, shit, that's actually kind of a good example of what egoistic labor would be. But even now, like after reading that, it even drills it in further as like a perfect example exactly of what Sterner's talking about when it comes to egoistic labor. And again, I'm echoing myself, but yeah, it totally <laughs> jive, uh, jives with communism, right? Except that people have different justifications. Like Marx saw exploitation and the division of labor, right? As purely economic terms, right? That you're being taken, the value is taken from you, not giving your due. But Kropotkin was against wage labor, not because of the arithmetic of the relationship, right? But because it was exploitative by its very nature, right? And um, I forgot where I was going with this exactly, but... Um, <laughs> That, that's the, that idea, right? That you're being used and t- your humanity is taken from you in this role as a machine, right? Until you can be replaced by a machine, right? Um, but yeah, you're used as... Um, you're, and that goes to the root of capitalism, right? It's using bodies and humans um, as f- a subsidized labor because the labor himself has to recreate himself at the... You know, not at the expense of the capitalists. Which kind of segues perfectly into... Stirner's critique of, of, of communism itself, communism being a means or method to guarantee every individual self-enjoyment and self-actualization. Stirner's principal critique of socialism and communism as they existed in his day was that they ignored the individual. They aimed to hand ownership over to the abstraction of society, which meant that no existing person actually owned anything. Authoritarian socialism cures the ills of free competition, which Stirner correctly noted was not free, by alienating everything from everyone. This sort of communism was based on community, on society with a capital S, not on the union Stirner desired. A communism that places possessions in the hands of a phantom while leaving nothing for the individual cannot really be much more than a new tyranny. Anarcho-communism can benefit from these egoistic insights since they serve as a reminder that communism isn't sought for its own sake, but as a means to guarantee each individual self-enjoyment and self-actualization. Yeah, and I think we saw this on the TL, right? Where someone was like, you know, if you're not a communist for other people in the global south, you're not a communist. I'm like, well, first and foremost, right, it should be your, your, you know, your self-interest to remove yourself from from you know the the absurdity of society as it is, and I think too even we this maybe sort of fits too with what we were saying like anarchism is the method, right? It's the strategy, it's the tactic, which yeah. I think this kind of goes to as well. Yeah, um, and these you know destructing destructuring these things, right? Um, the hierarchies. Not all hierarchies are going to be strictly in the material sense, right? They have material implications like patriarchy, sexism, right, et cetera, homophobia. But there's going to have to deal with the spooks that reinforce them, right? So we have to always use that method to deconstruct hierarchy where it exists. Good analysis there. Love that. Um, another important concept from Sterner that the article discusses is his idea of insurrection as opposed to revolution. And I'll quote Sterner. The revolution aimed at new arrangements. Insurrection calls upon us to no longer let ourselves be arranged, but to arrange our motherfucking selves <laughs> and set no glittering hopes on institutions. Yeah, and some people will probably call him being pedantic, right? But I totally see where he's coming from, especially because the revolutions 
of when he wrote this, right? The, the, the 1848, it would have come later. They were strictly just a change in regime, right? A change in, in power. But insurrection is a thing that applies to, to anarchy, anarchism in general with the idea is that we have to stop reproducing society, right? And that has, an insurrection starts in the home, right? It starts, you know, in the personal space. And then it becomes a collective thing and an insurgency becomes, you know, a societal transformation. I really like that last bit about setting no glittering hopes on institutions like the bourgeois state to save us. Or the, the workers' party. Or the right. vanguard or party. The workers, <laughs> or the workers' state, even. Yeah. Um, this, this next bit is a little bit utopian, but I really love this, this quote from him about the state and labor, about liberated egoists being fully realized individuals. This is so good. The state rests on the slavery of labor. If labor becomes free, the state is lost. Sterner urged egoists to unite, not out of any maudlin sentimentality or misplaced moralism, but out of a desire to see egoism become generalized in order for each egoist to know the pleasure that can be found in other fully realized individuals. And I wouldn't even call that utopian, right? I mean, if... If there is a material basis for communism, and I argue that there is, that is the end product, right? Because, you go. yeah, I guess really, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote that or said that, because really he's going against that, because he's saying there isn't a maudlin sentimentality or moralism, but a desire to see egoism become generalized so that we can experience one another as fully realized individuals as opposed to being even set by like some that metaphysical idea of the common good or the community even exactly and then uh, if you remove the barriers right of, of labor so the, the, the idea there is that labor is not free because it's subject to the whims of of you know other of the spook of the you know, capitalism etc so if if labor if labor is free then you toil you only work as much as you need to and then you have the rest of your ability to, to realize yourself right self-actualize and then, and you do that in association, right? Even I've been reading a lot of Kropotkin, but even Kropotkin talks about it, like you know, you put in your you're putting your hours to the basic needs of the commune if there is you know work to be done, and then the rest of your time is free association to create what it is that you want to create, right? Or you know whatever it is you want to do, whatever that creative endeavor is. And then uh, the piece finishes up pretty strongly here with a great quote or a set of quotes from from Sterner himself: "The crime of it." insurrection of expropriation of revolution doesn't it rumble in the distant thunder and don't you see how the sky grows ominously silent and gloomy it's great and uh i like how he he alludes it to crime right because i think that's just a great signifier that something is very wrong and how free you are not right when you know you doing anything in your agency becomes a crime if it's not like strictly you know um non-voluntary basis right like you know harming someone else for the sake of harming them but like if something you're doing that self-actualizes you or you know contests your your freedom and it's it's a crime that should be a big indicator that you are not free like you know this idea of crime i mean spook what immediately comes to mind is what's been going on the last several days or week with the uh the the ice agents (laughs) And people banding together to keep those, uh, you know, the ice from like removing folks from their homes or vehicles or 
whatever the case may be, it's like if you are that ICE agent and you are, you know what I mean, what you're doing, you know what I mean? Like that is a total great example of kind of what you're getting at in terms of this crime against the state, right? To prevent these agents from doing whatever, or you know what I mean? Yeah, it's totally like when people band together to do that, totally questioning, you know, the spook of law enforcement, of crime, right? Of citizenship, all these abstractions placed upon the individual. And um, you would think that the false consciousness would wake up cops up, but I guess, you know, you're not a cop because you're particularly bright. Usually <laughs> they don't last, I hear. Yeah. So how, how did you feel overall about this article? Like I said, I don't, I didn't feel like it really delved into the nitty gritty as far as how Sterner's work really, I guess, one of the more concrete examples of how his thought was utilized or applied to anarcho-communism. I mean, it was a very general sort of... Yeah, I, I see it as in two parts, right, where he kind of gives us a, a rundown of, you know, egoism, right, uh, which is a pretty good intro. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And the second did half, a good job there, for sure. And the second half is just kind of connecting to his clickbaity title right? <laughs> <laughs> right and um but yeah i i would have i would have liked also a deeper more historical look right in in egoism's effective currents in their in their historical contexts um but i still think it's a, a fun read and um i like the fact that he put quite a bit of a further reading sources at the yeah. bottom right to kind of pick your interest which i'll definitely i'll definitely post the article in the show notes so that everybody can get a, a feel for it but I mean, let's see. What's he? What's he drawing from? Obviously, he's drawing from the ego in its own. Um, apparently, <laughs> Sterner's critics by Max Sterner, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And he wrote uh, in the third person, right? I think it's noted there. There's a piece from Emma Goldman here. Uh, let's see. This might be kind of interesting. There's uh, one that's titled The Right to be Greedy, Theses on the Practical Necessity of Demanding Absolutely Everything by f- uh, everything by For Ourselves. Hmm. I don't know if that's the author or what. The- that could be like a anarchist group. For uh, Ourselves, yeah, it must be. Yeah. Um, there's another minimum, there's another piece from them. The Minimum Definition of Intelligence, The Soul of Man Under Socialism by Oscar Wilde. And then, ah, this might be kind of interesting. Read is uh, Max Turner's Dialectical Egoism, a new interpretation by John F. Welsh. Hmm. But yeah, I've been having I've been having too much Sterner on the podcast. I have to get away <laughs> from that a little bit. But he's so fucking fascinating to me. I, I think this is a good point to close off the Sterner chapter right on the episodes. But yeah, he's. I think he's really instructive um, of attacking these kind of the boogeymen, right? Yeah. And kind of it's really guilty in a lot of the, and I'll, I'll be as charitable as I can be, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the kind of the dogmatism that you see in a lot of those uh, left currents in like the Othcoms or people who are kind of adjacent to those tendencies, currents, right? Kind of like even, even the more democratic socialists, right? There's kind of these spooks that haunt them and we have to question it right just because um you know i've i've seen i've seen some hard mls say stuff like you know we have to study lenin mao etc because they already did it and they won and we just have to keep studying it i'm like well you know we have to interrogate all the assumptions right did they win right like you know how far did they win and who won right the party or the workers right and so I think this method of di- 
dialectics should we apply and deconstruct the things the 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 metaphysic as the metaphysical and material aspects of what haunt us yeah and i think too again that's kind of what sterner so great in that aspect of really going after the same things that kind of the postmodernists or in particular like derrida did is like because that was derrida's thing is okay so wait hold up modernism you snuck in all of these sort of like yeah you thought you got rid of those um sort of metaphysical ideas of god or whatever but you still like aspects of that snuck in to your modernist project and that's sort of why it failed and that's that same thing i think obviously marxism is birthed out of modern modernism and you even see and like, is subject to that same you know what i mean some of those same sort of logical structures that undergird everything right and i think you definitely see that in the liberal secular state as well oh, right absolutely. there's kind of like yeah like a, a cult right of reverence for this this you know like totally abstract thing to it's pretty crazy what they believe, but uh, what well, yeah. people I mean, believe. it's totally, I mean, I, we've talked about this so many times outside of the podcast, just that like ideal, everything is idealism in our society. Like mm-hmm. it's the default for fucking everything. Yeah. And, and that's why I don't really subscribe to like the superstructural and base stuff because like, well, like there, there is some apologetics in the Marxism that says the ideas reinforce the base. Right. But there's some point where the ideas, you know, come simply from uh, from spooks right that are not always totally tied to the economic relations right, right? yeah they don't necessarily directly logically follow from the material always mm-hmm. right but they definitely have a hand in shaping the material yeah. right so and there is that dialectical tension between like i think in some sense there's a tension between like i wouldn't necessarily i don't know if I'll, agree entirely with the marxian but i think there is that relationship right between things but like you're saying, I think you're astutely pointing out is, and maybe what the postmodernists point out is like, there's not like, you're not grasping the real ever. You're, you know what I mean? You're not reaching that true, that fundamental material. Like there's, there's slippage, right? There's going to mm-hmm. always going to be some, something escaping us to a degree. Exactly. Um, and especially if your only way of interrogating things is dialectically, where you can only see, the, you know, um, two ends of the same thing. You're not gonna. It, the world isn't binary by any means, right? You, you're always gonna have some omission. And I think even so, back to Sterner's concept of like, you know, all these things being limitations. The idea of humanity being itself a limitation on our potential as a creative nothing, as well. Like once you're sort of snapping down that concept on yourself like that in itself is a limitation that you're placing on what you can become absolutely and i think this applies in, in, in the individual as well right under the humanism umbrella but also with like post-civilization stuff right where like civilization itself is also like kind of this constraint of humanity right like we have to build something that looks this way functions this way or if not we don't have a society but you know i think that you know, a communism or a better world, we have to leave that behind and kind of create a new, and I'm not saying like when people hear post-sib, they usually think primitivist, but it's not primitivist, yeah. right? It's still technology, but I mean, our entire, entire like modern civilization is built on the idea of the nation state, right? Of capitalism, of all these things that are not good um, for the individual or good for the planet. So um, I think it definitely ties in with the, these constraints, right? That we put on ourselves, both society and as individuals. 
Absolutely. And I think that's also a, a pretty good place to stop for the night. Um, did you have any other final thoughts or anything you want to want to share with us? Um, no, but I think I'm finally going to get around to reading Stern, <laughs> to reading the unique and its property. I started, but then like I've gotten distracted because I've been doing, um, I was on a mandatory OT doing a postmodern show that'll be out next week. And uh, now I'm like all balls deep into Baudrillard. You got those books, yeah. Always Fuck with yeah. the new ones, right? <laughs> exactly, Just like start right? reading the new ones and yeah. leave halfway. <laughs> but uh, once again, Anarcho, at Anarcho underscore toast. I fucked that up last time. I didn't catch it till weeks later that I had put your at incorrectly I, <laughs> in the show notes, or show title, rather. Someone, I wanted the original one with no underscore, but it was taken by someone who's never used the account for anything. Oh, damn. Yeah, and it, like it just sees that the, property. I know, that right? I want to you, totally. Right? Yes, <laughs> I need to seize it. All they had was an avatar of a goofy toast icon. I'm like, you didn't, you changed the avatar and did nothing with this account. <laughs> Total waste. But uh, this is podcast care of Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. <laughs>